From the fish-filled Midwest lakes to the deep woods of the north, upland prairies filled with pheasants to the whistling wings of duck ponds, this is Saturday Morning Fan Outdoors, your show for hunting and fishing tips, topics, and conversations. You can also send us a question or opinion by emailing us, booth at kfan.com. Here's your host, the fan's Captain Billy Hildebrand. It is the, uh, I don't know, it's about 12 o'clock. I'm kind of in a fog right now because we, just, we just got off the stage, one of the public land stages, and we were talking to people. I met a man, Bob St. Pierre is here, too. I should introduce him and bring him into the conversation before I start talking to him, perhaps. You're, you're relatively calm. I don't know what the hell, what's going on with that? <laughs> yeah, it feels like we just, uh, we just stopped talking uh, couple minutes ago with the morning show it does it yeah does. I, things are going great we have a uh, we have a very nice crowd of people here coming through uh the hallway of the minneapolis convention center for for pheasant fest things are exciting it is exciting you know and i <laughs> trying to get through the aisle to get a burger just before i had no uh you know you gotta wean kind of wind your way through there and uh and see what goes on too when you finally get there but when i did get up there i met a man from providence rhode island he had never been to minnesota before and i said what are you what are you doing he says i've gotten into this bird hunting thing and i am addicted really you just randomly met him yep Rhode Island, and he came for three below. He, he How long is that three below today? He just came in, and he said, "I we don't have the public lands you were talking about on stage before. Mm. We've got stocked birds, and we have uh, game farms and things. Sure. But he said, I'm looking to move, and I might just move <laughs> to Minnesota. He said, I fished extensively in Montana. I said, that's good bird hunting. Yeah. Well, I've never hunted there, but... I hear you've got some fish here, too. And I think what I might do is buy an RV, and I'm just going to come here in the fall. And I said, winters get long. Oh, he says, I'll go to Florida in the wintertime. <laughs> or Arizona, where you could uh, chase quail. It's true. Although you could chase quail in Florida, too. You also chase turkeys. Yeah, go fishing in the Gulf of Mexico, yeah. which we got to get you to do sometime. <laughs> um, but <laughs> this is an incredible event, and I, I just watched... Uh, another public land stage issue with Sarah Strauman was there and Jenny Becker Finn was there state representative state representative uh, Scott Gluck from the Fish and Wildlife Service Aaron Mongo from Clay County and Aaron Sanchez for Fences Forever and uh, Rob Driesline who we had on this morning yep. was moderating that and it, it uh, had a nice crowd there talking issues as diverse as uh, well, the Twin Metals proposal related to the Boundary Waters to uh, bonding for new WMAs. It was a really, really dynamic conversation. So, you know, as you as you walk around, Bob, and I did before the show actually began when you could just kind of jog through the aisles. You can't do that anymore because no. <laughs> uh, lots of people. But seeing some old friends is really fun. Yeah. Um, 
and I'm seeing puppies walking around, and and it's it's just really cool. And and the the age demographics vary from from very young to the older folks, and more did, in my style. <laughs> did you uh, did you go visit your your second favorite? Uh, I guess it'd be your third favorite breed of bird dog, the one you're thinking about adding to the family. The Brittany? No, well, that's your. Well, I don't know what's your first and second these days, but I'm referring to the small Munsterlanders. Oh, no, no, I can't. There's a whole bunch of small and large Munsterlanders on the on the floor. They, they've got a couple different breed clubs. And a bit of trivia for you: If a small Munsterlander was born in Germany. Like Wirehair's German name is Deutsch Strafars. Okay. Right? A small Munsterlander born in Germany is a Klein Munsterlander. Oh, really? Yeah. So, it, And there's those breed clubs here, too. So yeah, there's three German? Uh, for the Bird Dog Parade, I had to learn three different languages. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I, I had to, um, a whole bunch of German names. Deutsch Strafars, Longars, Kurzars. Uh, there's the... It, some Italian, Spinoni Italiano. Would you like a side of your spaghetti with your bird dog captain? <laughs> uh, the Bracco Italiano. Uh, the Blue Picardi Spaniel. This Sounds like a mixed drink. But Settle down. My dog. grandfather's going to get after you. Oh, oh, why is that? Well, he's also a godfather. <laughs> so you might I'll find be, a head in bed. Oh, with you. I'll be sleeping with the fishes, is what you're saying. <laughs> Well, you might find some concrete overshoes. Yes. So yesterday, the, the, uh, we kicked off this event with the uh, Bird Dog Parade, and we had 100 dogs. We had 40, I think it was 41 different breeds. And uh, most of those folks are represented by breed clubs or kennels that are out here on the show floor. And I, I, the statistic next to the Westminster Dog Show, this is the biggest uh, sporting dog collection in the country. Why? Yeah, so if, if you have any aspirations of uh, adding a bird dog to your family, like coming to National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic while it's in town, because it moves around the country every year, this is you got two days to get down here. Well, I've got one for you, too. Because anybody that stops by the American Brittany booth down by the Purina or the Bird Dog stage, you'll be able to visit and see one of my Snaps puppies. Oh, really? Because she is, uh, he is down there. and uh, he's. Which re- one is this? That's Dave Carlson's pup. Okay. Bullet. Bullet. Um, and I, I, when he and I were talking, I, I told him that, my bell dog has got lots of gold. He said, "Bullet ain't lacking any gold." <laughs> There's a lot of a uh, lot of bird dog breeds that don't lack any gold. I understand that. I've I got am. a 17 week old one in my house that isn't lacking any gold either. Uh, but I think one of the one of the really fun things, and I say this each time we're here, Bob, is that this is a group of like-minded people. Yeah, and it's, you know, it, it is something, a lot of people hear National Pheasant Fest and think, well, geez, you know, it's a collection of blaze orange, redneck, and shotguns. And, you know, certainly there's there's all sorts of the firearms manufacturers, shotguns, you know, it, it is any kind of blaze orange you want to find. But 
you know, the conversations that we're having on the panels about public lands and habitat access, I mean, this is the furthest thing from a quote-unquote redneck convention, you know? I mean, you got got bird dogs, you got habitat conservation conversations, you got wildlife artwork, anything you can do with a, a, you know, a pheasant feather, whether it's jewelry or a wreath, it's here. Uh, You got, you know, where our mission is wildlife habitat conservation, so there's a huge aspect of the show dedicated to the intersection of agriculture and wildlife habitat. John Deere's got tractors on the yep. show floor. There's seed drills, native seed mixes, pollinate, the pollinator plaza. We've got a youth village for kids to learn about the outdoors. We've got Path to the Upland stage. Uh, you know, Wild Game Cooking stage, one of my favorites, right? So it's just, it's a really, really diverse, dynamic event that uh, has brought out Minnesotans and apparently North uh, Rhode Islanders in yep. droves. Okay. And I've had, had a number of, uh, of UP. I don't know that there's anybody left in the UP, Captain, because I've had a few few folks come up and say hello from the UP, too. That's, you know, how fun is that? Oh, it's incredible. I mean, the, you know, we've talked about it. We talked about it off air, but the, the, the power of the fan radio network to, you know, to reach listeners in, you know, pheasant country of Bismarck, North Dakota, and Aberdeen, South Dakota, and rough grouse country in Duluth, and Hayward, Wisconsin, and down in pheasant range of Sioux Falls, and Marshall, and Worthington, uh, you know, to, to reach the masses with our habitat discussion. And, you know, it, 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 we talk a lot about the connection between what we do as an organization, Pheasants Forever, and putting wildlife habitat on the ground and how it's connected to the web of life, right? We, we learned all that as third graders, how you, you, know, you pull one string on that web, in this case, creating better habitat. That improves water quality all over the Midwest. It um, helps help, um, make our soils healthier. And yeah, our interest is pretty focused on pheasants, but when you create habitat for pheasants, grassland, prairie habitat, you're creating habitat for monarch butterflies, for honeybees, for waterfowl, for songbirds, for deer, for ducks, for turkeys, for you and me. You know, that the presentation I give later today is about how Pheasants Forever is a public lands creator. Since Pheasants Forever was started in 1982, right in St. Paul, We've created 200,000 acres of permanent public lands that anybody can go walk on. Yeah. Anybody can go look for songbirds, bird watch, go for a hike, or carry a shotgun come fall and follow a good bird dog behind them. You know, I, I stood up on stage both last night and today, and I said, I'm in talking with the group of people that was there. I said, I, I am of the age that I remember the soil bank era. Yeah. I remember that. I hunted that. I saw that. There aren't a lot of people, unless they go back a ways, that can say that. Yes, yeah, soil bank, I mean, to define that, that's pre-CRP conservation yes. program. So CRP was created in 1985. Soil bank, that's through the... 60s and 70s, right? Probably before that. I don't know exactly, but my earliest memories are of it. Yeah. And 
then when that went away, I raised two boys who are now 33 and 29, and the only places they knew to hunt were on public lands. And those same public lands created a passionate desire to consume the whole aspect of hunting. And that's directly attributed to public lands. Without public lands, and, and I will stand up in front of God and country and say this, without public lands, 95% of us have no place to hunt. Yeah. And it's, it's here forever. I mean, it's not going to go away. It's here forever. That's a long time. And with the efforts of Pheasants Forever, you know, the, the habitat is going to be there. And if you build it, they it, they will come. Mm-hmm. And each year is testimonial to that. Well, and, it, it, you know, it's we're obviously at Pheasant Fest and we're saying Pheasants Forever, but this is more than just Pheasants Forever. Oh, heavens, too, you know? yes. You know, the biggest thing, the first thing you think about is the Legacy Amendment. There were Minnesota voters... 2008 passed by you know voted to tax themselves yeah 56 percent of the voters went to the ballot and said three-eighths of one percent of our sales tax should go to um, you know making our minnesota better from cleaner waters um, more public lands protecting critical habitat um, encouraging the arts of minnesota that's been a game changer you know, if, whether you're talking about the DNR, Ducks Unlimited, Soil Water Conservation District, you know, anybody that cares about the outdoors in Minnesota can look at the Legacy Amendment as a crown jewel for the in the entire country, and we've got it right here in Minnesota. Okay, well, let's use our crown jewel for just a minute. We'll take a very brief break, and we'll leave Pheasant Fest for just a couple of minutes, and on our return, we'll be back with Nick Larson. From Duluth, Minnesota. From Duluth. Duluth. We're going to talk a little bit of grouse hunting at Pheasant Fest. How's well, that for a curveball? And there is no snow in Duluth. The fan has learned it's 70 degrees and sunny. <laughs> so we will take a pause, but invite you to stop on down. What time is the hour for Pheasant Fest today? Uh, yeah, it runs till 6 p.m. today. And then tomorrow? Tomorrow, 9 to 4. So get here early. So... I am Billy Hildebrand. Bob St. Pierre is him. I can see his <laughs> wild eyes in the crowd. And we will both be back along with Nick Larson from Pheasant Fest right after this. This is Fan S. And the Fan. We're back, Pheasant Fest, live, this edition, special edition of Fan Outdoors, Billy Hildebrand here with you, inviting you to stop on down, it's a, it's a cast of thousands, I guess that's fair to say, and uh, Bob is here with a big smile on his face, it's really hard to get him to sit still though, I'll tell you that. Um, so as I uh, am close to a cough here, I'm... Why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest, please? So, well, like I teased before we uh, we before we came on, uh, you had said you know it's National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, but we're in Minnesota for crying out loud. So we're going to talk a little grouse hunting with the host of the Project Upland podcast, 
And a longtime Fan Outdoors listener, Nick Larson from Duluth, Minnesota. Welcome to Fan Outdoors, Duluth Nick. Yeah, 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 that's uh, that's probably not the first time I've been called that. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Captain, for having me. It's an honor to be on Fan Outdoors. Really excited to be here at Pheasant Fest with Project Upland, and uh, it's it's a great time. It's busy today. It's busy, and, you know, what? how much fun is this? It's a ton of fun. It's a ton of fun. This is this is our second year being here as, with the Project Upland crew, and, I mean, obviously, if people are familiar with our work, I mean, we kind of do all things Upland, so a gathering of Upland bird hunters. You've got, you've got nonprofits. You've got, you've got brands. You've got consumers. Everybody here, this is one of the biggest gathering of Upland hunters in the country all year we had a a first ever film fest thursday night and you were front and center in that and your your film was a film was featured there and it was great fun i mean i've i've not done anything like that but it had to be fun to produce it was it was a ton of fun billy we it, again, people are not familiar with our work. We we produce films. That's one of the main things that we do. So, for us, an event like that, an upland bird hunting conservation style film festival event, is right in our wheelhouse. And when Pheasants Forever called us up and asked us if we wanted to contribute films to the event, I mean, it's a no-brainer. We do everything that we can. We're always looking for ways to partner with these guys and to see the work on the screen with you know over 200 people coming out to watch films about upland bird hunting to listen to the habitat mission of Pheasants Forever. How can you beat that? Yeah, you, you talked a little bit about part of Project Upland's businesses, films. Yep. Uh, explain the rest and how you fit into that. Yeah, so I so I think the the simplest way to describe what Project Upland does is it, we tell stories about upland bird hunting. And we tell it through the eyes of basically anyone and everyone in the upland bird hunting community. We follow people with cameras. We follow people with recorders, and we record podcasts. We interview them. We tell stories about expert dog trainers, industry professionals, DIY bird hunters. We cover the entire spectrum. Wildlife habitat. Wildlife habitat. Some conservation. Cooking. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we really like to capture everything under the sun when it comes to upland bird hunting and we try to do that in we as project upland we're very you know we're digital first but we now have a print magazine we try to be everywhere we possibly can and that's where upland bird hunters are you know we try to reach them in any way possible and we we create cool content by telling their stories so i I was a selfishly motivated captain for asking nick to uh be the first guest because he is uh from northern minnesota and a hardcore grouse hunter and I thought, you know, we might be able to pick his brain for some spots. So let's talk a little bit about how was your season this year, Nick? And uh, could you hunt northern Minnesota and yep. uh, northern Wisconsin? Yep. How was grouse hunting? I had one of my best seasons hunting rough grouse uh, at, that I've ever had. It was it was fantastic. Uh, you know, we've had. I follow the I follow the grouse season closely. That's what I spend the most time doing. I'm I'm usually around the 30 day mark, 30 days in the rough grouse or woodcock woods. And the last couple of years, we've had some, I would say, some some swings, some ups and downs in populations. A little bit tougher this year for me personally, where I was hunting, northeast Minnesota, northwest Wisconsin, I saw a significant jump in bird numbers, and that uh, contributed to my success and, and enjoyment. It was it was an excellent year for me as a grouse hunter. And are you hunting private lands, public lands, at public like what kind of lands are you after? I, I hunt I hunt probably ninety to ninety five percent publicly owned land. Uh, I will hunt a little bit of there's there's some in Wisconsin, there's some privately owned 
land open to public access. So you could say, in, in effect, I hunt 100% public land. I mean, to me, grouse hunting is a public land pursuit, especially in this area. We're so fortunate to have the resources that we do. I mean, that's your land. You can go out there and use it, and you can have some of the greatest, I think, hunting that, that there is, wild bird hunting in wild country. It's unbelievable. Nick, there, there, were, there was a lot of people that we talked to, though, that didn't have that success. Yep. Now, in your opinion, what's the difference? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Billy, and it, and it comes up often. I do think that if one person's having a great season, it that does not mean that it's going to be universally the same across the board. Rough grouse populations swing in based on geography. Correct. Populations are going to be better in some areas than others, and that's never been more clear to me in that I talk to so many bird hunters now uh, that I, I get a lot of reports. So I know that if I'm having a great season over here, it doesn't mean that 30, 40, 50 miles down the road, it's going to be the same. The tough thing about grouse hunting is people do it in different ways, and you never quite know if you're comparing apples to apples unless you really know how somebody hunts. True. Because there's a difference in in you know spending as much possible time as you can in the best possible habitat. Of course, your success is going to go up. But there are other ways that, that people hunt, and you just don't always know if you're comparing, again, apples to apples. But I, I just think that the population absolutely swings based on geography. So if you had a tough year where you were at, that's not uncommon. I, I think that, and, and this is something that we found pheasant hunting also, uh, different areas have pockets of birds, yep. and it will be stronger than, the, than another area that may a year before have had a number of birds on it, but it, it really, there's so many variables in Correct. that that make a difference. Yep. Okay. Yep. Another thing that I should just point out is, uh, you know, before Project Upland, you were a regional rep for the Rough Grouse Society as yes. well, so you're super connected within the, the Minnesota grouse culture and scene. Yeah. You, know, what, what, you, know, you talked about you had a pretty good year. You've heard a lot of varying. What, what's yep. the overall review of the 2019 grouse season for the folks that you're talking to? You know, I think the, the common thread that I found in the people where I, I feel fairly confident, I'll, I'll use this analogy again, that I can compare apples to apples. I know how they hunt. I know how hard they hunt. The people that I talk to that hunt similar to me all had better seasons this year than the past two. I think I think 2019 was significantly better in a number of areas than it was in 17 and 18, and I believe that has that was true with a lot of the the people that hunt as much or more than I do. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, it, what about woodcock? Woodcock is an interesting one because that one I heard I heard reports all across the board. I heard where we're at. We're in great woodcock habitat. Yeah. We have great resident bird populations. So I never, I don't felt like I ever hit any heavy, heavy flights. When when the migration happens, and there's a lot of mystery around when the woodcock migrate because it's not the same every year. I felt like there were always woodcock in the woods, and we've had them late all the way up until you can almost finish hunting them, which is usually first week in November. Last couple of years, I, I found woodcock right up until closing day, which is always nice because when the woodcock are around, it's it's just a little bit more fun out there. You know, right. when the woodcock leave, I love that because then it's the the intensity and the focus is on grouse. But to, as my buddy Jay Dowd likes to say, it's a little bit lonelier in the woods when the woodcock leave, right? 
But it's it's. I heard a lot of reports where some people felt it was one of the best woodcock seasons they ever had. For me, I always found them, but I didn't find them in heavy, heavy densities. So it's interesting because I would have characterized this year as one of the best woodcock years. And I recall you saying I've that. ever had, but. Grouse, I was disappointed in a lot of, particularly Wisconsin, western Wisconsin. I yep. thought, you know, they had pretty wet spring, and I feel like where I, some of my sweet spots, yep. that was tough. Yeah. Now, I had a better grouse hunting season in some of the Minnesota places. I'm like, you know, anybody you talk to that hunted around or this, yep. like in general, or yep. is sort of I had it up there this you know, year. Top three, no matter what, but. You know, grouse hunters around or would say it was an epic year. Yep. Uh, right? I mean, generally that's, that's what I, That's what I heard. One consistent pattern that I absolutely heard from my Minnesota hunters is essentially the further north and east you went, the better it got. Yeah. And north of Duluth, north of Duluth, anywhere in the state, which is a big area, that's a big area, but as you got north of Duluth, the grouse hunting was really, really good. And I've got a lot of, a lot of friends that live in the metro area. And if they're just getting out for a day, maybe they can't get up as far. They hunted south of Duluth. You can absolutely get into grouse that way. But I heard pretty consistent reports south of Duluth that people were not as impressed as in previous years. So to me, it felt like north and east, you were better off this year. So you're a hardcore rough grouse hunter, yep. woodcock hunter. You've been at National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic for a day and a half. Yep. Is this a relevant event for uh, the couple hundred thousand grouse hunters absolutely absolutely it's it's so relevant i honestly I, bob and i joke all the time I, I have yet to actually go on a wild pheasant hunt it sounds kind of crazy but Did you I, hear that captain <laughs> i grew up in duluth and i just i have so much so much public land out my back door you know it's just kind of a it's kind of a it's a convenience thing but i will get out there someday but honestly this place, this National Pheasant Festival Classic, I would come every single year if I can. It's just, it's awesome. What is your, what what attracts you? What part of the show for? You know what? I think, I, I've been to some industry trade shows, and, and that's just obviously a different feel. Just the way that Pheasants Forever goes about this. I mean, it is a gathering of upland bird hunters, and it feels like that more than it is like a trade show or something. Yeah. You know, it's every, we want everybody to come out, and there's something for everybody to do here. You guys do such a great job of keeping things interesting, and I mean, also, as I've got deeper and deeper into the conservation and, and just the upland hunting world, I have so many so many friends and contacts that I've made over the past five years. They're all here. Yeah. Why would I not want to be here? It's it's a great place to get together and see a lot of people that you don't get to see all the time. Yeah, to, to that point, my, I met my wife Meredith was here yesterday. I got home, like, what was your favorite part? Oh, it was the Monarch uh, photo, uh, photo booth. Yeah. Like, I haven't made it there yet. I, I got to go find that today. It's hard to see it all. There's a lot to see. Yeah. Very well, cool. and I think you'll find that over and over. And I talked with a gentleman last night who was, who was here yesterday, but he was coming back today for that very reason. And I, I think that that speaks well of what's going on. Uh, Nick, if people come down here, where can they find you? Yeah, we are we are right near the brand new Public Lands Pavilion, which is an awesome thing put together by PF and, and Quill Forever this year. We are booth number three twenty, aisle three hundred, right near the Public Lands. Pavilion, we're there, and uh, we got the Project Dublin booth set up. We're playing our public grouse film on loop. Not maybe not the most ideal place to watch it, but if you want to catch a sneak peek, you can come in and see it. And we got magazines, we got hats, we got shirts, we got all all kinds of stuff. And honestly, 
if you come to see us, that's great, but come down here to support Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And you've listened to the fan for a long time. What is it, 92.1 up in Duluth? 92.1, yep, yep. And we didn't always have that. It wasn't, uh, it was uh, probably within the last six, seven years that we got 92.1. Yeah, when I was I was fresh out of college, I, I moved down to Minneapolis and I worked downtown and Somehow, some way, I stumbled upon this fan outdoors thing and started listening to the captain. I didn't know who Bob St. Pierre was at that time, but man, I would come home from Duluth after fishing or hunting some weekend, and I'd get to the office on Monday morning and listen to fan outdoors, or I'd listen to it. My favorite was driving up for deer opener and listening to you guys a podcast on the way up. That was always how I got excited, and that was before all of our hunting podcasts have have gone. And I mentioned this to you guys the other days. I mean, you you were one of the inspirations for me to start the project up on podcasts and. I love listening to Fan Outdoors, and it's it's an honor to be here with you guys. Uh, okay, so if people come by, yeah, people come by and they say, Nick, I need a spot, I need a place to go <laughs> grouse hunting, and it, it'll you'll know Bob because he'll have a, a long wig hair on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll be undercover. <laughs> yeah, he'll have dark glasses on, <laughs> if and people, he'll probably he'll speak with a real squeaky voice. <laughs> If people are looking for a spot, they'll, they'll have to come and uh, come and shake my hand and talk to me for a little bit, and, and uh, we'll we'll get them pointed in the right direction. Excellent. Yeah. Hey, Nick, thank you for coming by. Thank you for doing what you do, man. Thank you, guys, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're always welcome. You're always welcome. That's Nick Larson from uh, <clears throat> from Pheasant from Pheasant Fest live down here as my voice is kind of leaving it seems like i've been talking all day and we will take a very brief pause and i will uh, have a gulp of coffee and clear my throat and we'll be right back with um let's see who's next bob we got sam soholt from the public lands bus you've never even heard of the public lands Bus. well neither has everybody else if they're not down here so we're right in front of it we are going to introduce you you better get on this bus because it's going to give you a good time. We'll be right back with more Fan Outdoors after this. There goes a puppy. You're listening to Fan. Forty-one minutes after the hour of twelve o'clock, with you until the two o'clock hour. Live from Pheasant Fest down at the Minneapolis Convention Center, inviting you to come on down. And you won't meet anybody. It's but whatever. You'll meet a lot of people, but <laughs> not the come on down type. You're like, you're like a game show host today. <laughs> um, hey, Bob St. Pierre is here also, and. I just had to, he's actually chained to the chair, and he keeps yanking on the chain, so we're just not going to let him go. So we'll keep until 2 o'clock. But with us right now, you know, I'm going to get run over by a bus, and I think as it goes forward, I'm not sure, but we've got the driver of that bus, as Sam Soholt is right here. I got to know, Sam, first of all, welcome. Thank you big old bus behind us yeah you know and i was gonna say as long as uh nobody throws you under it i won't run over you. okay yeah. that's good <laughs> don't push now yeah. uh, you, you saw me trying to weave my way around huh? uh-huh. um but there has to be a big story to the a story to the bus there is a story to the bus uh so i'll dive right in I'll, I'll introduce myself a little bit uh so i'm sam soholt i have been a professional photographer for almost a decade now and um, But for the last few years, I have been known simply as 
the bus guy, quote unquote. <laughs> and, and you know, for better or worse, that's you know, like I take that as a compliment. Good. Um, it means that enough people have seen the bus project to actually recognize me as kind of the man behind the billboard. Um, All right. So the bus project started. It really started back. It started in like 2013. The idea kind of planted itself. And I was working for uh, my brother, actually, out in Fort Collins, Colorado. And we were talking about different ideas for marketing his business, which was a backcountry hunting store, an archery pro shop. And we thought, well, maybe we could use a bus for, like, a marketing rig, or we could um, turn it into a mobile archery pro shop and travel from Fort Collins to, say, Laramie or Wellington or other places and set up shop and fix bows. And um, It just never really... And nothing ever really happened with it. You know, the seed was planted about buying a bus, and then, you know, and then later we talked about, wow, we should just buy one and do like a 12-state turkey tour because it's got pretty good clearance. You could throw some bunk beds in the back and, uh, you know, and go hunt around. So, and that was all the way back in 2013, maybe early 2014 when we were talking about this. And just the idea of it all, and every time I would see a school bus driving down the road, I would see the potential, like well, all the things that you could do with a bus and that much space inside. And, you know, like I just kept dreaming of having this like rolling hunting shack. And, <laughs> you know, like, you know, most like most people see like a classic car go down the road. And they're like, oh, look at that, you know, Chevelle, look at that Corvette or look at that, you know, Charger. And I was like, look at that Bluebird. Look at that, look at that Thomas, you know. <laughs> so, so I was eyeing down, you know, buses. And um, so uh, but yeah, at this time I was still doing freelance video and photography work, and had kind of kind of built up that business um, uh, where I was doing doing well in it, and had reached a lot of the goals that I was trying to accomplish within the photography world. And I have a hard time, like if I climb a mountain, I have a really hard time just like sitting at the top and enjoying the view. I just like, oh, there's a bigger one, you know. And then what's the next project? What's the next project? So it was the fall of 2016. I'd come off an awesome season of both not only hunting but shooting photos and uh, was just trying to figure out what the next big project was going to be in my life. And the bus project just kept coming back up in my mind. I just kept couldn't, couldn't forget about it. And I was 29 at the time. I was like, I'm turning 30 this year. If I don't do this and like take a big swing and turn a bus into a rolling shack, like I'll regret it forever. Like not, you know, doing the big adventure. So... This was all happening at the same time that there was a lot of talk in the federal government about land transfer legislation being passed, which for all of you listening uh, is a basically a good marketing ploy for the federal government to transfer land ownership to the states. Long story short, the states can't afford to manage the land, so it's a fast track to privatization, sell-off, uh, extraction on all of the public lands that we use, enjoy, and love. And uh, so I thought that it was perfect timing to pair the bus with this huge message of protecting, supporting, and uh, maintaining our public land system. And what better vehicle than a 36-foot rolling billboard, you know, a, you know, a 1993 Bluebird. So uh, I was on the hunt. And I, you know, when you go on the hunt for a bus, you go to Craigslist. So, so of course you do. Yeah, yeah that was you know, exactly. Yeah, the I mean, that's where I go. Yeah, you know, you, you know, like, you know, when I was looking at Minneapolis, Fargo, Sioux Falls, Colorado, uh, I found one down in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, that the guy was going to sell me. Uh, I had worked out a deal with him. It was actually a, a flat nose bus. It was forty footer, um, and he'd already ripped all the seats out of it, and. I, he was willing to do a trade with me. It was 1500 cash and a gun. 
<laughs> I had worked out this trade. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, all right, I'll be there in two weeks. And he uh, he was like, well, I got another guy that might buy it this weekend. And, you know, he kind of backed out of the deal. So here I am, back to hunting for a bus. And so my brother was looking, too, because obviously he's like, well, yeah, like, you know, you buy a bus and build it out. I get to hang out in it. <laughs> so he found the bus in Fort Lupton, Colorado. And that guy had it listed for 5500 bucks, And it had 180,000 miles on it. But the motor and tranny had been completely rebuilt by the school district. 20,000 miles prior. So it's basically a brand new drivetrain with a little bit older chassis and uh, you know body on it. So I go back to bartering mode and I'm trying to trade this guy gear and you know stuff like to try to get the price down. And I think like I think he just got tired of my incessant messaging back and forth like, "Well, what about this? What about this? Would you take this?" you know, and he's like finally like, "I'll take 3500 cash." And I was like, "Done. I'll be <laughs> so so, yeah, New Year's Eve 2016, I uh, bought the school bus and and uh, parked it behind my brother's shop for a while, and he helped me rip all the seats out of it. And then that, uh, it was late March, I drove it back to South Dakota. My parents were nice enough to let me park it in their driveway at their little lake place and work on it for the summer. And uh, so the build began. Uh, and the whole time, I was... Uh, working on this like basically building the message behind it where the bus was going to be this basically keep it public mobile you know the public land bus it was going to be me traveling spending time on public land documenting the process of the both the build and spending time on the land and kind of showcasing what our public lands have to offer and then uh yeah so that first year i you know i was like well it's going to be hard for me to like pay for this on my own but i had contacts within the hunting industry and so I reached out to everybody I knew, like, hey, I've got this bus project, do it, this whole thing going on, and everybody was all fired up about it, you know. And and then uh, when it, it until it came time to pay for, you know, asking for of money, course. For it, <laughs> of course, then, then uh, there not a single one came through. <laughs> Gee. So I, uh, but at that point I was like, you know what, I'm doing this project. I don't care. Like I'm, I'll spend my own money and make this thing happen and and do it. And I did it. And at the same time, uh, as the bus project launched, my brother and I started Public Land Tees, which was a way to not only help fuel the bus go down the road, but $5 from every single item that we sell, whether it be in person or on our website, goes directly back to conservation. That's phenomenal. What a story. Huh? I mean, what a story. I never heard it before. <laughs> right, because you think about, uh, you know, starting this concept. It's not, Sam, you don't have a TV show. No. Right? Nope. There's no TV show. There's no radio. There's no sponsors. Right. Right? You just got this idea. I'm going I'm to turn a bus <laughs> into a billboard and a statement. Yeah. And, and that's the beautiful thing about the digital age. You know, I was able to basically push the whole message through my Instagram and other social media channels and, and people really grabbed, like they just really grabbed onto the concept of, uh, you know, the bus build itself and then what the whole message meant. Um, so yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, tell folks where they can look at the bus build and what's your Instagram handle? Yeah. So my Instagram handle is just at my name at Sam Soholt. Um, and it's, Soholt. Uh, Soholt is S O H O L T. And if uh, people go back in my feed a little bit, I actually did a complete recap on front, uh, you know, start to finish on the bus build. Um, I think I went through it last summer just so people could see it, but it's not too far back in the feed. Uh, but yeah, so, so have been running. I <laughs> bought the bus and I was like, all right, I'll do this for a year, and that was three years ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, forty thousand miles later, driving a school bus down the road, uh, I'm still raising money for public lands and talking conservation and. Uh, really trying to just 
anytime there's an issue that comes up, uh, you know, I look to people like BHA and Pheasants Forever and, and different conservation groups um, to look at all of the issues that are happening and then if it kind of fits in the wheelhouse or if it's a it's an urgent issue i really urge all of my followers to go check it out be active be involved um and i think that you know if people like me and other people are doing it like we can seriously make a difference in all this so fan listeners are very familiar with build a wildlife area the yep. campaign that we've held radiothons for to create new public wildlife areas and you mentioned the five dollars that you're generating from every t-shirt here is going to go straight to build a wildlife area and the thing that i'm so proud of captain is at the end of three days at pheasant fest we're gonna have this pot of money thanks to sam backcountry hunters and anglers project upland that we can go match with legacy amendment with minnesota dnr with the fish and wildlife service and National Pheasant Fest will result in a brand new WMA or WPA. I mean, what other sports show in the country can you go for three days in a market and then we're going to create a new place for you to go explore with your bird dog, with your kids, with a pair of binoculars, just go out there and, I mean, it's just awesome. No, it's, and it's just, it's fun to be a part of that, you know, and, and when we had the phone call back in July about us coming down to Pheasant Fest and you asked if we would be willing to donate 10% and like, you know, obviously we already do that through our website, so it was a, it was a no-brainer for us, but, you know, giving that $5 back from every item is, for us, ends up being closer to donating 20% of the revenue that we bring in over the course of the weekend, so happy to be a part of it and you know just just pump it we're opening up places for people to go explore so before we run out of time i want you know another story that demonstrate your commitment to conservation is what you did with the duck stamp sure this yeah tell us about that so did you hear about the stamp i did not. project great yeah so i love telling i love telling people who haven't heard about it because uh i liked it i think it was a pretty cool project so the idea evolved for about a year and basically the whole concept was just to try to to sell extra duck stamps because you know second to say the Pittman Robertson Act uh, the duck stamp program is one of the best conservation tools that this country has pure and magic pure yeah really i mean by law 98% of the money generated has to go towards right. habitat and so i started looking at the concept like how do we how do we figure out a way to buy more duck stamps raise money, more duck stamp money and the idea that we came up with is I basically put a video out there just encouraging people to send me money directly as just a 100% shot to conservation. So they could either PayPal or Venmo me $25 or more, and with every penny, we would go out and buy a duck stamp with that money. And on top of that, I reached out to, I was actually driving the bus one day to a photo shoot, and I just, I called four companies, and all four of them were like, yep, put us down for 100 So. Our company, we bought, took $2,500, bought the original 100 stamps, and then put the video out there about this whole project. And I got five other companies to donate 100 stamps apiece. And then through individual donations, we ended up raising $25,000. Really? And bought 1,000 duck stamps, which then we turned into a second fundraiser. And we gave all the duck stamps away through purchases on our website. And so we raised an additional almost $5,000 through the sale of merchandise, which then we Sam, put, right, put right back into the system. That's send, incredible. No. Send me money. I'll buy a duck stamp for you. Yep. And that resulted in $25,000. $25,000. So the goal for this year 
That was a uh, very loosely organized <laughs> uh, conservation. Obviously, initiative. very successful. It was, yeah, and it was the coolest part about it was how much, how quickly it blew up, and the amount of like I put that video out there and like you know just ask people to share it and talk about it, and it was like that one video I think was shared like four hundred times, and so it just like it just kept building and growing, and I actually uh, I don't know who saw it today or whatever. I got a, a PayPal. Uh, or a Venmo notification a little bit ago, somebody just sent me 25 bucks. <laughs> so it's already started. So the uh, the goal for 2020 is 10 times that amount. Wow. So we're going to be a lot more organized. We'll have a website people can go to and donate 25 bucks. Uh, we'll be reaching out to a lot more companies to get involved. But yeah, the goal is to raise 250000 this year for the Duck Stamp Initiative. Um, the Stamp It Forward project, and uh, just infuse money right back into wetlands. Sam, tell people where you are down here, so when they come to Pheasant Fest, they can come and visit you. Yeah. And maybe they haven't heard the story, they came in at the tail end of it, yeah. they need to hear it. Yeah, for sure. So if you come to the convention center, we are directly under the 200-aisle banner in the Public Lands Pavilion. Um, basically, come in the doors at the main entrance, take a left, walk all the way down. We're right by the end of the wall. Right. God, you can't miss it. You can't yeah. miss the bus. Yeah, I was going to say, guys, we're talking about look for the bus on the showroom yeah. floor. Yeah. And if, if you do happen to show up this afternoon, I'll be on the public land stage at 3 p.m. and uh, going to tell the whole story about the bus project again and, and kind of what we've done and where we're going with it. And, um, yeah. Okay, before we let you go, i got to know selfishly, Bob. Yes. What's it like to drive this bus across the country? <laughs> it's uh, it is a chore. I, <laughs> I have described it as like driving an eighteen thousand pound microwave that's on. <laughs> <laughs> you said it has a lot of clearance. I think you'd be stuck all the no, time it, when you're out. I am. I am very careful about what roads I drive it down. <laughs> and like, uh, like I mean, there's been times where you know I pull up to a national forest road. And I have to walk like a mile to check and make sure there's a spot I could actually turn around before I go down it. There's a lot of planning that goes into driving a bus around. Oh, man. Well, thank you, and kudos to what you do. Hey, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on so I could tell the story. Yeah, that's awesome. Love it. In fact, we'd like to keep up with you and see if we can keep track of you. And maybe we can help a little bit along your journey, too. Yeah, absolutely. That would be be fantastic. Excellent. Yeah. Well... I think that, go Insta- ahead. Instagram handle again. Oh, yeah. Instagram handle is just at Sam Soholt. There you go. Okay. Sam Soholt, our guest, and uh, we thank him tremendously and invite you all to stop by the green bus. Yeah, you can't miss it. <laughs> you really can't. No, and don't let Bob throw you under it because that'll be the end. <laughs> Sam won't drive over you, but Bob will throw you over under it. And we'll take a pause and be back with Mr. Bob West next on Fan Outdoors. This is Fan Fan. Well, the noise in the background would probably tell you that we are someplace with a lot of people. At some place would be Pheasant Fest, the National Pheasant Fest down at the Minneapolis Convention Center, inviting you to come on down. There are lots of people got down here, and there are lots of smiles from all shapes, sizes, ages, and everything in between. And we're talking with a number of different people. We'll be with you until the 2 o'clock hour. I am Billy Hildebrand. He's Bob St. Pierre, chained to his chair. (laughs) (laughs) You said uh, all shapes, sizes. I thought you were going to talk about bird dogs. (laughs) Well, that too. 
That's coming up right around the corner because our next guest is all about bird dogs. And he has been all about bird dogs for the major part of his life. Yeah. He is a well-known trainer, nationally known trainer. Worked for Purina at the time for a, a long while. He is a, a fabulous dog trainer. Now he is a... He works for the same company you work for now. <laughs> I heard the government. <laughs> well, I meant, retirement. I meant so, retirement. Oh, this is true. Yeah. You guys got nothing but hunting. <laughs> we, uh, we are buds that way. Yeah. <laughs> But Bob West joins us, and he is now uh, deeply involved in field trials. He has had Britneys for a, a long time, I believe. Mo- mostly setters, pointers, short hairs. But okay. in the last seven years, I jumped into the Labrador Retriever all-age AKC competition. And I'm getting an education. Well, Bob, <laughs> I mean, you, you really had it figured out for a long time. Now you've gone to the dark side. How come? Yeah. Well, I, I watched as I worked with Nestle during okay. all those years. I watched the Retrievers, the AKC All-Age, and I told myself if I ever want to say I, I'm a dog trainer, that's where I need to be. Now, I need to find out. I, I'm not sure if that's because I've been told that a lab, if you tell it, to go that direction, it's going to run, and if there's a wall in his way, it's yeah. going to hit that wall hard and go right through it. Hopefully mine's smart enough to wait there at the wall, but <laughs> they are pretty biddable. I agree with you, but the technicalities and the complexity of what they expect in the retriever field trial world, you know, in the book it says must emulate hunting situations. We have very few 400-yard retrieves in hunting situations. This is a very but, true. <laughs> You know. That's called a cripple or just a hard <laughs> shot someplace. Yeah. Well, uh, what is the biggest difference going from uh, training pointers to training retrievers? What- well, Bob, in a lot of ways, there's the, the basics are still all the same, but it starts to change when you get into this distant work that okay. Billy, and the preciseness of it. Uh, there's some basic training, fundamental stuff there that we don't need to teach bird dogs but uh, in order to have the foundation so that when you need a control at that distance you have it so that that's where they split out and it's mostly in the bird dog world we teach a dog to retrieve we train them to retrieve you know the the word trained retrieve but in the in the retriever world we take that and keep putting distance to it we put what we call piles at great distance and you teach a dog to trust you go straight like billy said keep going straight until i stop you so without so a, a, a lab uh without seeing a bird fall out of the sky mm-hmm. trusts you as the handler to just keep going as long as you're pointing i can i can literally put a dog's head in a bushel basket at 400 yards pretty easy with just by directing that dog yeah, whistle to where stop, you want it to go. Whistle stop. I can turn them left, turn them right, straight back. Uh, I, it's, it, a, it's amazing. And I, the, do, I do it every day, and it amazes me. The operative word to the last sentence from Bob West was pretty easily. <laughs> he can put now, a dog's head I, pretty I maybe, easily. I, I maybe understated that, but uh, well, it, can be, it's, it's, can be done. Is that right? Fairly if you follow easily the, you follow the steps is it is it simply a matter of following the steps and building trust 
Uh, you know, a lot of people think we force them to do that. That we, These dogs want to do that. We just teach them how to run straight. We teach them how, you know, like I said, indifferent from hunting, if you drop the duck on the other side of the pond, if they run around and get it, everybody's happy. In the field trial world, they have to cut the corners and they have to go straight to it in order to be successful in the contest. You know, I hear people talk in the field trial world about a, a dog washing out, Bob. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? That means they weren't competitive at the level that the owner expected them to be. But I'll tell you something. You're, you just walked right in on me on that one. <laughs> two years ago, two years ago, I bought a field trial warship. Year and a half later, I've qualified that dog for two national championships and made her an amateur field champion within two-year period. So, you know, you can readjust, you can back up, and you can work a dog through some things if you use a little different, uh, you know, a little different method, a little different tack, and you try to you try to figure the dog out and what it needs, and and uh, I call it clicking when they. When they really start, you respect each other and you trust each other. There's a lot of times I got to, I have to back out. I have to get out of the way. She knows where she's supposed to go. I don't want to interfere too much and upset that I get back. Tell her, tell her, go get it. Do dog personalities vary a great deal? And sure. do you, as the trainer or the handler? have to be able to decipher that absolutely absolutely was that the true was that true with pointers too oh yeah oh yeah and uh, it's true in all breeds uh, all breeds all family groups we you know <clears throat> we tend to talk about dogs like we would talk about a you know in a in, say you want to buy a chevy corvette we pretty well know they're all going to be like that 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 analogy don't work in the sporting dog words if you want to buy a, a, a english pointer there's 15 different kinds of english pointers in different family groups so you get you have to uh, when you're selecting a puppy you have to know watch the parents watch the grandparents make sure that's the kind of pointer or that's the type of lab that you want and uh, drill in there and then there's different ones in, within the litter you know that with your short hairs they're all different so you know we don't want to encourage anybody to come to pheasant fest and try to pick up a puppy today no. right that that's not happening but no. you can come to pheasant fest and learn an absolute ton if you're interested you down the road in adding a puppy to the family, what what would you suggest to folks that are interested in, you know, over the course of the next couple months, finding a puppy? Well, Where do you come to Pheasant Fest to learn? I'd come here because we've got, what, 40 or 50 different breeds here? Right. And you can look at all these family groups and you, you can say, I like that dog's coat. I like the size of that dog. That dog will live in the house. Or I like this dog because... I could keep him outdoors and so on, and you start to, you start to zero, zero in. Do I want a flushing dog? Okay, what's what's a flushing dog? We've got Springers, Cockers, everything here to look at, and and then the pointing breeds, and you can, you can start to narrow your choices of dog breeds that way, and you can come to the dog stage and and listen to lab trainers, 
Tom Dockin. Tom Dockin. You can talk Ricky and Ronnie Smith about English pointers, English setters. And Josh is up there with some English labs, British labs, right. and so on. You can, you can start to zero your way in there. And then at, where Bob's leading me with this is once you do that, you zero into a particular family group. Right. You look at the mom and dad and grandparents if you can. And that, that's where you really say, this is really what I want. And I encourage you to do the background work because you're looking at a 9 to 12-year commitment mm-hmm. when you pick that puppy up and take it home. So you got to so do your work. One thing that's intimidating, like, you know, and I... St- started getting into this as my buying my own first bird dogs you start talking to folks at shows like this and they're like well we got this title and that title i was like i i don't i don't want to trial my dog i'm i'm a bird mm-hmm. hunter period yeah. but over time i've learned why the titles were important even though I probably am never going to play any of the games. The, you the might. AKC, but. <laughs> I don't know. I, no. I, I'm 20 years in, and I, I really don't care to play the games. I'm just a hunter. Still but, can happen. I've heard that from so many people. <laughs> but the moral of the, the question is, those titles mean something. Why? Those titles mean something because we know that the dog has the right confirmation to endure and to keep on going without being lame and stuff all the time. We know that dog has the courage to hit the heavy cover and work we know that dog has the ability that comes along with it to be trained to that level to get a title so what a what a contest person or a hunt test person is looking at the whole package eight ten different characteristics where just the backyard breeder they might like well that dog's yellow and this one's yellow i want a yellow dog your chances are far better in a dog that's been in a hunt test program or something similar to that where the lineage has been let's say tested and proven and has those characteristics that we have to have to have a hunting dog right the apple will fall a lot closer to the tree right yep you can depend on it one last question bob how far back in a lineage should people be looking to think that uh, the these the the champions or the titles are going to make a difference, and how far when it really doesn't make much difference. Well, I think obviously the grandparents are pretty important, but when you start getting back in third, fourth, fifth, you know, it's nice to talk about Billy, but I I don't know. Now there are there are prepotent, there are strong breed lines that that might not be true in, but I I'd say grandparents is real important beyond that they start weakening you know it's diluted by yeah every time yeah it is i wish we had more time i, I gotta too. i want to call you i want you to come on with us on uh, absolutely i enjoy both of you maybe uh, i'll call you thursday i'll call you before thursday you need to do that okay <laughs> i will do that i'll call you thanks before. billy thank you thanks, thanks bob. bob thank you I enjoyed it thank you man Anytime. It's great to see you again, too, by the way. Good to be seen rather than viewed. <laughs> this is very true. Thank you, my friend. That's Bob West, and we are not viewing Bob West. We see him, and we talk to him, and we appreciate all the skills and knowledge that he has and wish him nothing but success in the field trial world. We will take a pause from Pheasant Fest and talk with Ed Anderson next. I think he's painting something 
behind us, and Bob will probably throw it up on Twitter, too. He throws everything else up on Twitter. (laughs) We'll be right back. You're listening to The Fan. Trampled by Turtles leads us back into Pheasant Fest, coming for you live down from the Minnesota, Minneapolis Auditorium and Convention Center, inviting you to stop on down. Bob St. Pierre is chained to the chair. <laughs> we'll keep him right here until the 2 o'clock hour, at which time I'll hand him the key. But until that time, he can't have it. We're keeping him. And... Bob, why don't you go ahead and introduce our next guest? Yeah, you know, we talk about Pheasant Fest being all sorts of different things. Dog show, public land show, wild game cookie show. And we always talk about the art piece. Well, I thought, we're sitting right in front of a mural getting painted. What the heck, Captain? Let's have an artist on it. That's a good idea. And uh, we picked a good one because he's got a heck of a story. And he comes from... Our own backyard. Ed Anderson. Hey, guys. Welcome to Fan Outdoors. Hey, thank you. Good to be here. Uh, it's nice to have you here. In fact, now hailing from Idaho. Idaho, Boise, Idaho. Boise, Idaho. Yeah. yeah. Die gosh. Grew up grew up here in Hopkins, uh, joined the military, got stationed out there, and now it's home. 20 years. So, yeah. military to art. Yep. There, that's obvious. Obvious, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, no, I actually I, uh, I went to the U here, uh, got a, got an architecture degree, did did some art stuff while I was here, got a got a degree in that, and then uh, yeah, got out of the Air Force, was doing doing uh, basically residential redevelopment and uh, using that architecture degree. Bottom fell out of the uh, real estate market, and the only trade I've ever known is drawn pictures. Did chalkboards and bars and restaurants, a little bit of graphic design and some painting and. Yeah, it's worked out. I don't know how, but yeah, yeah, I mean, you had to have a big break along the way that made you your name relevant. Yeah, yeah, I was, uh, you know, just just hustling and and uh, kind of created this painting style that I'm doing here. And uh, Gray Sporting Journal picked me up for three covers in a year, including the uh, 40th anniversary cover. And so, yeah, instantly had collectors had to figure out what the art business was actually about, and been traveling around to shows, doing all kinds of crazy stuff from there on out. So. Radio being a non-visual medium, right, right, <laughs> right. The, the <laughs> art style that you're doing here, how how do you describe your art style? I I tell everyone it's a controlled mess. So <laughs> I'm I'm real fortunate. I I, uh, I I do a lot of hunting and fishing work in Idaho. I own a lodge there, and and we do a lot of lot of lot of fly fishing, a lot of elk hunting. But my stories are all based on my journal, so I, I'll sketch out pictures wherever I'm traveling to doing that thing. And the painting style is very similar. Pile on a lot of color really fast, let it drip, let it run, and then I do a big black ink drawing over the top. So all this stuff that's behind me, it's just acrylic with a lot of water and then Sharpie marker. It's, it's nothing fancy. And it, it's not only hunting. You do a ton of fish. ton of fish. I work, I've, I've been working in the fly fishing industry for a long time, worked with a lot of great magazines there, a lot of great nonprofits in the, in the fishing industry as well. Um, also, you know, spend a lot of time downhill skiing, uh, ski touring, things like that, snowmobiling. 
So kind of just uh, just a life in the outdoors, mountain biking. Yeah. So, so a, I know you you go to Fort Myers, similar to the twins. Yep. Yep. And you yep. do a lot of painting down there. I do. And I do. That's focused on saltwater fishing. Yeah, saltwater fishing primarily. I was lucky enough this year to be the artist in residence for the Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge, and so it's really cool to have you guys have the uh, public lands pavilion here, and and I've been listening to the speakers talk about Ding Darling and what he meant to conservation and. And actually, I leave this uh, this cold tundra and head down to uh, Sanibel Island on uh, Monday because we're doing the end of, sh- end of uh, residency show down there. So, so folks that uh, maybe are scratching their head and saying, "Who's Ding Darling?" Ding Darling is a. Uh, I mean, just a tremendous story in the history of conservation in our country. is a Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoonist who ran the biological survey, basically created the refuge system, created the duck stamp system. I mean, a real pillar of what how we manage our wildlife in this country as we know it. And and yeah, a guy who was a he was a cartoonist, liked his whiskey, like <laughs> fun 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 story. So yeah, go check was check he that in the out. Military too? At any I don't I don't know if he was in the military actually, but yeah. <laughs> So if folks come to Pheasant Fest, you yep. know, they, they walk down the main aisle, and there you have this giant mural. Yep. Explain what you're doing here. So I've got a, I, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, about 16 feet by 8 feet, maybe a little bit smaller than that, but uh, just got a giant pheasant, got a dog on point, and, and uh, it's getting up in front of the hunter, and, and I, I, I think I'm going to call it the big miss. We got the, I think the, <laughs> the pheasant here is about 8 feet long, so, you know, so the, you know that buddy's looking at him right there and saying, you know, oh, he's going to miss this one, and, you know. <laughs> Billy would say that that's me, except the dog isn't the right breed. All right. <laughs> Right, yeah, that's true. So, so would Bob miss that shot? Right there? You know, hard. <laughs> I've watched him a number of times. Usually, it's two shells and both barrels empty, and right. the bird keeps going. Yep. Oh, but yeah. I, he made the mistake of doing it in front of me. <laughs> so how, where, you know, where do you come up? Like, I know some photog- or some artists mm-hmm. they sit on a wetland with a camera right? right 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 they take photos and then they try to mimic that photo yep what's your process for coming up with a concept um i mean it's again it's it's based on my sketchbook and the stories i tell in that thing um the this isn't a specific incident it's a it's a whole bunch of stuff in my head and uh you know that this this dog isn't quite a Weimaraner, but my dad ran Weimaraners for years. You know, being out in South Dakota and just flushing birds and trying to to capture that moment that that we all know. You know, kind of surprises you when the bird gets up and collecting yourself to to point and shoot. What's the uh, what's the easiest pe- uh, wildlife species to paint, and what's the hardest, most difficult wildlife? Oh man, that's wow. Um, fi- I find fish very easy because you almost can't go wrong there's so many different camouflages and colors and lines and uh and i've been doing a lot of them for a while yeah. uh so that that's that's pretty easy um elk are crazy hard why? uh why is that there's just so many different lines and movement in the in the antlers and and the the way their mouth is set up for bugling there's a split almost cleft lip and and then the big hanging beard almost but it's not like a moose that you know so there's it there's a it, there's not a lot of cheating on it <laughs> so i would have i would have predicted fish I, I mean i'm not i'm not gonna paint anything captain come Thank on god but i would have predicted fish were of the easiest side of things yep um elk yeah i could see that i, I would have suspected dogs and i 
we're on a harder side, and I'm thinking about like trying to capture the eyes and the personality of yeah. a, wi- a wildlife species. And the more personality into the animal, the harder it's probably to paint. It's prob- that's probably true, and especially with, with dogs, because people have such a personal connection to their animals. So while I'm painting this thing, this dog in the corner... Everyone comes up and says, "No, that's the wrong dog. I need my, you know, I need my Brittany in there, or right. my Lab, or something else." Um, but yeah, I mean that that twinkle in the eye. I know you got me to do a painting for you, Bob, which you, which you like. But I love uh, it. It's uh, you know, getting the personality of the dog is that's that's something. It, so. it, you're, you're talking about, you know, you walk into my front door, Billy, and there's a picture of Esky that Ed painted, and what is perfect is the eyes, right? And you look at the eyes, and you're like. Well, that pup is painting, you know, and we've talked to, uh, like, Lee Chose, the photographer. That's also the most difficult thing from a photography perspective. But, two, is, isn't there a danger with doing it, because, say, commissioning a piece for, like, Bob, if you're not right there to see the dog? Oh, yeah. Because they may not be pleased with it? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, but, but again, it, one of the nice things is is photos, right? Yeah, I mean, you send me a lot of photos, and you get you get the personality of the dog, and you can kind of tell, especially the dog. If you've been around bird dogs at yeah, all, yeah, that's true. You can kind of you you know just the 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 way that dog is laying down in that photo, or how his ears are popped up. I like. I don't, I don't. I didn't talk to Bob at all about his dog, but you kind of get the feel for what that dog is, right? Like. I don't know. I've run Chesapeake Bay Retrievers for a while, and uh, you know, I I can look at a Chesapeake and be like, I know what that dog's like. I now run Boykin Spaniels. I look at Boykins now, and you can tell the difference between just by looking at them right away what what one dog is versus the other. So, I don't know. I mean, yeah, there's a danger, but uh, you know, I I do a lot of commission work, and and generally my clients are happy. I think. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask you about the commission work. Yeah, yeah. Is it often people wanting a. a- Say a, a picture of their dog or a painting of their dog. Um, a lot, of, yeah. There's a lot of lot of bird dog stuff, um, and then uh, people want me to tell the story of their of their hunt. So doing, um, you know, if it's elk hunting, a fishing trip. So being able to work in uh, where the place is. How you know, hunting in Montana is very different than hunting in South Dakota. So being able to, you know, have the bluffs of the Missouri River in the background versus you know the the, the Great Plains. It changes from place to place, so that's that's some that's most of the conversation I have with folks. So, um, I don't do, I don't do any grip and grins with fish, the, the, you, know, you, you know, catching yep. catching the big fish. That's always a big request for people. And then I don't do I don't do dead animals. Just don't. I, do you, I, you I don't. Paint, you paint people. I, I actually started doing um, before I started doing this style. I was doing portraiture of, huh. of humans. That's where I started out with with kind of the painting career. So yeah. And if folks. Do you want to see the, your artwork throughout your website and uh, Instagram? To yeah, Ed, edandersonart.com, and you can find me at every variation of Ed Anderson Art. Owen? Owen. Gmail, Yahoo. I'm on Instagram at Ed Anderson Art, Facebook, all that good stuff. So. And what will happen with this particular painting? you got to ask Bob that. They just, they just told me to show up and entertain people. <laughs> they, couldn't, they couldn't afford girls in bathing suits standing here, so they got me in. I'd rather have so. that, very honestly. <laughs> That I believe it's going to go on the auction tonight, uh, the big Saturday night. Oh my! Uh, in May, yeah. And so uh, cool. Somebody's going to take that home. Awesome! So yeah. you're you're going to leave this frozen tundra 
and had. Uh, I'm going. I'm going flying to Fort Myers. I'm on Sanibel Island for the next two weeks. That's too bad. And I, I got. I got to work a little bit, but there might be some some, some fishing happening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you for coming by. Hey, not at all, Captain. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Our pleasure. Thanks, Bob. That's Ed Anderson, and do come down here if you find the green bus. You can't miss Ed because he'll be right here next to it, right in front of it. And if somebody threatens to push you under the bus, well, that'd be Bob. (laughs) We'll take a pause, and we'll be back with Mr. Dick Bramer next on Fan Outdoors. And Dick is a bird hunter. We'll talk to him about that and much, much more because it's Twins Climb is right around the corner, and so is he. We'll be right back with one last segment of Fan Outdoors. This is Fan and the Fan. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Mm-hmm. Well, last segment of Fan Outdoors live coming your way from Pheasant Fest out at the Minneapolis Convention Center. I invite you to come on by. There's a lot of people. There seems to be a few a few less people than there were earlier in the afternoon, but there's no shortage of things to do and places to go and people to see and things to learn. I think that's an essential part of what we do. And uh, we'll be with you until the 2 o'clock hour. So from now until the 2 o'clock hour, in just a moment, you may think that a twins game broke out down here at the uh, convention center but it really didn't we are surrounded by bird hunters and uh, there is a bird hunter extraordinaire sitting just to my left and bob go ahead and introduce him and a very new life member of pheasants forever to the keynote speaker at our life member event which occurred at 7.30, and he's still here, Dick Bramer. So you must be enjoying Pheasant Fest. I am. It's been a lot of fun to be here, walking around through the exhibits here with the breakfast. Uh, was very well attended, and, and I really enjoyed that. I, I'm not an, an early riser unless there's you know, a fishing rod going to be in my hand <laughs> or a shotgun or a deer rifle. But uh, it was fun this morning, and uh, what amazed me, I mean, this is a national event here, right? But I, I met... You know, upland hunters from Maryland, Alabama, Florida, you know, and it's like, so you don't realize, you know, we know it's a very big deal here in the upper Midwest, bird hunting and, and the like, but really it's a, there's a passion for it all around the country. So the captain and I did a show this morning as well, so we didn't hear your message. Tell us a little bit about what you talked about. Well, I talked about uh, how in a very small town in western Minnesota, I was introduced to both baseball, which is you know, been my career now, and pheasant hunting at about the same time. This was out in Traverse County, a little town called Dumont, and I said at the time, back then, and maybe still today, there are more pheasants out in Traverse County than people, (laughs) because the the towns are really small, and the farms are pretty big, and uh, I was introduced to it before I could even carry a gun. Uh, After school, I'd go over to a couple of uh, a guy's uh, house, uh, lived right across the street from the elementary school in Dumont, and they would let me join them as they road hunted. Neither one of them could, could walk very well. One of them couldn't see very well. The other one couldn't hear very well. So we would road hunt along the gravel roads. Great and I, recipe. Right? You know, well, but I ended up being their dog because we would drive around till we saw some roosters in the ditch. We'd stop the car. I would walk back on the road. 
you know, beyond where the birds we saw and then walk the ditch trying to flush it in front of these guys. But, again, with somebody who didn't see real well and somebody else who didn't hear very well. You uh, talk about a recipe we for would disaster. Get, we would get maybe one bird a year, but uh, it was a big deal. And I don't know why, because I wasn't carrying a gun, but that really lit my passion for it. And I, I, I was so happy when my career led me uh, to Iowa for a few years because I was excited to reconnect with pheasant hunting in Iowa, and I moved back to Minnesota a long, long time ago, 40 years ago, and I've, I, every year I, I do some uh, pheasant hunting in Minnesota, South Dakota, and occasionally down in Iowa, too. So with I think that you spend some time down in South Dakota hunting, and do you, do you hunt behind dogs? I, I do. I, I've got an ideal situation. Because I travel so much during the summertime with the twin schedule, I'm gone half the time. Uh, I, I couldn't, you know, leave a dog right. to my wife. She's had enough to do raising two kids. <laughs> but uh, so, but I know people who have good dogs, and uh, that's the ideal thing because, yeah. uh, you know, there's nothing more enjoyable than than you know hunting behind some really good dogs. And and uh, they joke of, where I hunt out in central South Dakota. They still joke about the first year I went out there. I dropped a couple of roosters in a semi-frozen slough. And the dogs didn't see the birds, and I knew right where they were. So I dropped my gun, took off my hunting coat, and walked out on about a quarter inch of ice and went up to my waist. But I went out, and I came back with both roosters. So so my days as a dog, apparently, (laughs) are not over over with. I got them. They still, you know, they were cackling at me from the pickup truck as I was trying to get out of the slough. It is because if you follow you on Instagram, the last couple of, or not Instagram, Twitter, the last three years or so, you know, opening day of South Dakota, like, boom, there's there's Dick Bramer's photos with uh, pheasants. You yeah. go out there really regularly. Well, a couple times a year I do. I've always imagined a world where I could, you know, buy two out-of-state licenses and make it four trips. I love it out there. You know, and as you guys know, it's... it's it's great to hunt when there are where there are a lot of birds, and yes. there are where I've been hunting. But it's the the, the people that you hunt with, sure. and the, the the farmers out there that let us hunt. They're, they're, they've become good friends, and they're very devout Twins fans too. So um, uh, it, it's it's good all around. I get to go out there and and you know hear about you know the corn prices and all of that and then they ask me about you know whether nelson cruz can hit 40 home runs again so so it, it's really a good partnership so you got done speaking at 8 30 ish today something like that nine o'clock yeah and yeah i got a note here a little bit ago he's like you know dick bramer's still here do you want to have him on the radio show I'm like he's still here yeah well <laughs> what? What, so, so what's kept you? What, what do you, you oh, found on the show for? Yeah, I've been wandering around here, and there's so many great displays. And you know, and I, I told you know Billy this that you know, all right, this is the middle of February, and I'm you know fired up for the start of the baseball season. Sure. Well, it's the same feeling I get in August or September, getting fired up for the start of the pheasant season. So to be on the verge of the baseball season and now look at all the wonderful displays here and uh, yeah it's the old kid in the candy store type thing i'd like one of those and two of those and i'll take one more of those you know once upon a time it felt like every baseball player was also a hunter and an angler you know i, I think about stories about roger maris right mm-hmm. he grew up in north dakota yeah fargo yep and, you know big bird hunters and they all fished on the off days yeah, outside of Brian Dozier, who he had a really tight relationship while he was a twin, I don't hear that as much these days. Is it just you don't see it on social media because they're afraid of the 
uh, the connection with shotguns or what? Are they? No. Are they? I think it has more to do with the demographics of you know who the Twins have right now. I mean, we had what twelve or thirteen Latin ball players, mm-hmm. and the whole idea of you know hunting generally is foreign to them. Uh, but you know, we were lucky here because. Kent Herbeck was was the nucleus of some really good Twins teams, but you know when Gary Gaetti was on the team, he became a hunter, yeah. and other people became hunters, and, and and so you know one of the things that I've really enjoyed throughout the course of my career is you know Kent and I become good friends, but we become hunting and fishing buddies too, and and uh, I, I won't bore you with it. But I, you're I, not bored, well, Come on, but you man. know what? I've, I've written a book. It's coming out in a few weeks, and it's just a bunch of stories. And one of them involves Ken Herbeck, and I took him goose hunting for the first time back really? in 1982 over Lacquaparo. And um, so we pick him up at like four in the morning, drive out there, get breakfast. We you know, we get to our blinds, and when we picked him up, you know, he had a shotgun and a duffel bag, and he was wearing a bright blue warm-up suit. And I thought, <laughs> well, now. Now, he's, he's got to have a camouflage jacket or something in the duffel bag, right? But we get to our blind, and he's still got the blue warm-up suit. So sure enough, you know, we're in the blind 20 minutes. Flock of geese come out. He picks out the biggest one, one shot, knocks it down in the stubble field. But as he approaches it, it's first goose he's ever shot. As he approaches it, the goose was just dazed, winged and dazed, and it came up and started running and weaving its way <laughs> through all these other blinds with this hulking... Twins first baseman in a bright blue warm-up suit chasing him. And I thought, well, I wonder what these other hunters feel. The bottom line is he ended up getting the goose, and I got one, and I roasted mine, and he had took his to a taxidermist, and it, and it still hangs in his family room, uh, the, the goose that he shot a long time ago back in 1982. Oh, my. So that's one of the stories so in the be, book. That's 82, so that's before the famous Game 7 duck hunt. Yeah, yeah, but, I mean, that's who he... Is, was, and is, you know, okay, well, the ducks are flying. Uh, yeah, I know i got a ball game to play tonight, but, you know, the morning of Game 7 of the World Series, he went duck hunting. Was he wearing a blue track I don't that? know about that. <laughs> I, 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 I kid him. I said, well, now the goose is still on your wall. I hope you threw the blue warm-up suit away. <laughs> I, to be honest with you, I don't think he could fit in it anymore. So, uh, You mentioned that the, the twin season is just about to start, and I've often thought with bird hunting in, in this part of the world, Seasons change, and then you kind of bring a closure to it, and then you get excited about the next one. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you're excited about the Twins' upcoming season, yeah. but then you get excited all over again for the, the bird season. Yeah. Is that accurate? That's accurate. I, I you know, am really fired up because I think Twins fans are really going to enjoy not just this year's team, but this, this team should be good for a while. You know, they've got some of the best young players in, in, in all of baseball. They've made some rather aggressive mood, uh, moves to, you know, add to the roster with Josh Donaldson people and Kenta Maeda. But invariably, and it's the Minnesotan in me. I was born and raised here, and I know where my interests lie, and I know as much as I'd love the baseball season to last 12 months out of the year, it doesn't. And so I get to August or September, and then I start thinking. Do you really? I really do. And it doesn't make any difference whether the Twins are 20 games above 500 or 20 games below. It's something that's innate in me. I start thinking about hunting and fishing. Unfortunately, I don't get a chance to do much uh, open water fishing because I'm so busy during the summer. But I start thinking about ice fishing and pheasant hunting and deer hunting and all that. So I'm very much an outdoorsman. Very good. And did that come from you to, to you from your folks? No, my father was not much. He, I think I took him fishing 
Oh, really? More than he ever took me fishing. I know that to be true. He wasn't much of an outdoorsman. I, I owe my hunting background to those two elderly okay. gentlemen in Dumont. I had uncles that uh, fished. My father was not much of an outdoorsman. And, and so the, the interest that I have there, um, some of it came from within, but you know it was not fostered directly by my parents, more so from my uncles and then these two wonderful gentlemen who uh, introduced me to pheasant hunting. So what would, you, what would you say to somebody who says, I'd like to try hunting, but I'm not sure I'm going to like it? That's the problem, isn't it? If you don't have parents or some connection that that encourages you as a youngster, I was seven or eight when I yeah. when I was riding in the back seat with these guys. If you don't have that, and then you, you know, you as you get older, it's natural you're gonna you're gonna find your own interest. My wife and I, what we decided to do is, you know, we wanted to expose our kids, my son and my daughter, to as much as we could: music, dancing, arts, outdoors, hunting, fishing. You know, whatever. And then once they're exposed to it, you do have to let them choose because yes. they're not they're not going to have fun doing something they don't enjoy doing. And so with my son, I think I've succeeded. I think he is an outdoorsman, uh, enjoys being outside even in the dead of winter. And and uh, my daughter is, loves to go fishing. You know, she's not a hunter, but she loves to go fishing. So I think you have to you have to do that if you're a parent and you have a passion as i do hunting and fishing you've got to expose your kids to it as early as possible but then back off and see where they are because it's 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 not going to be any fun for them if they have to go you know pheasant hunting to south dakota with dad (laughs) and i think you've alluded to it a couple times you're not a huge open water fishing fisherman but you ice fish quite a bit. Oh yeah. Compa- you know, if you follow you on Twitter, yeah, you spent some time on a five gallon. I coffee. had a wonderful year last year, and uh, this year just wasn't good. We got like so many lakes, yeah. you know, had a lot of slush, and uh, so it wasn't it wasn't good. But uh, you know, if I, what I can't do on the lakes in the summertime, I try to make up for it, particularly in December when the walleyes are biting. Yeah. <laughs> well. Dick, we've got just a couple of minutes left, and if people are out there listening to us and they're thinking about coming down to Pheasant Fest, what would you tell them? Uh, particularly if they haven't come before, this is fabulous. I, I, you know, when we're done here, I'm I couldn't cover all the aisles <laughs> here this morning, and I had to leave to meet somebody for lunch, and I'm back here, and I can't wait to go through and see things, and and uh, you know, it's you know, long, long ways from now till pheasant season, but it does get you stoked up and uh, i'll be spending some money here before the afternoon is out so i would encourage you know those who like upland hunting to come out and see the exhibits and and uh you know it's if it's a passion of yours you should have an interest 12 months out of the year and that's the way i feel about bird hunting so yeah you, you can't have a dog because you travel so much but if you could uh-huh. what breed would be in the bramer house oh i've really enjoyed uh springer spaniels and and having a, a dog tell me that there's a bird there so i don't yeah. i don't get too flustered when they get up underneath my boots you know <laughs> uh so i don't know we hope we'll hopefully cross that uh, uh that bridge here down the road now that, now that the kids are out of the house great. dick bramer thank you sir for Billy, joining us I appreciate thanks for having it. me it's great fun bob thank yeah, you sir thank you that was dick bramer who joined us and he's off to the the twins Twin summer camp and uh, spring, spring training. training. I'll be down there in two weeks. And we are going to duck out of here and invite you to come on down to Pheasant Fest. It's to the rest of the day. 
Until s- 6 o'clock today and then 9 to 4 tomorrow. Well, for Bob St. Pierre, I am Billy Hildebrand. He's Dick Bramer, and we're going to say bye-bye. Come on down. Go Twins. <laughs>